friends, this is the Scripture Study Project, our podcast dedicated to helping you discover the scriptures in a fresh way, invest your mind and heart into your personal study, and connect to God in your everyday life. We are your hosts, Zach and Krista Horton, and we are excited to be studying with you. We're studying for the week of July 6th through 12th um, in Alma chapters 30 and 31. And Zach, I haven't told you, I don't think I've told you this yet, but I was just thinking that I don't even know what episode number we're on. I was trying to keep track of season three, episode one and two. Mm. I was wanting to restart, but then I noticed on our Instagram page as I announce each episode that I had listed it was episode 15 and then I skipped to like 17 and then I went back to... So we don't really know what episode we're on. Um, In the grand scheme of things, I think it's July and we've almost hit 150 (laughs) episodes, which is pretty crazy. Um, But here we are. I'll get it straightened out and get it figured out for you, but maybe no one else cares, so it doesn't matter. We are broadcasting live from um, not just a purple room, but the purple room. Uh, We're in Krista's parents' house. We're on location because we don't have a home. And (laughs) um, we're in a bedroom that... Did you ever sleep in this bedroom? Yes, I did. You slept in this bedroom? It was yellow. No, blue. I don't know. It's been many colors. There you go. Um, Lots of history here, and we're excited. It's now a playroom for mm -hmm. the grandkids. So here we are. And uh, we are maybe low on energy if we don't sound as... um, energetic as maybe we normally do it's because um one of the two of us thought that it would be a good idea to do a juice cleanse the other of the two of us as a good loyal faithful companion decided to follow that one who had that idea but the one who did the following is now regretting his decision because his stomach hurts and he has no energy yeah you do sound a little monotone don't you today (laughs) and to be fair the other half of the other part of whoever he was just (laughs) referring to um has also given you very much leeway to leave at any time (laughs) and i also told you not to bring that up but now at least you know why if zach's talking monotone you know why whoever invented apple cider vinegar there's i don't know no no hope and no forgiveness for that person anyway We are excited to study, and we're excited for these chapters. Um, There's two chapters this week, Alma 30 and 31. Two years ago when we did the Book of Mormon, we studied Alma chapter 30, or actually I studied it um, for the episode. I was up at, at, uh, I was on my own at college. Krista wasn't there, and so this year you get four times the episode. We're studying two chapters instead of just one, and you get two hosts instead of just one. But the storyline is, we just finished up the story of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. In fact, the beginning of chapter 30 mentions them and their peace and what they've come to accomplish. And then we have two two chapters of back-to-back antichrists. The first one in chapter 30, of course, is Korahor. And then in chapter 31, they're not often labeled antichrist, but they're the Zoramites, and they very much are antichrists. They pray on their, this is the people, if you remember, they build a giant tower called the Ramiumptum. They go up there and they say their prayer. Uh, They come down, they never think about or talk about God for the rest of the week. Um, And they cause a lot of problems for people. Uh, Most especially, they cause people not to believe in Christ. As I think about these chapters, I've always loved studying them. And I always have the same thought and quote. In fact, I mentioned them two years ago. The thought or the memory is this. 
I have always loved magic. Um, you remember those, they used to have those magic, maybe you don't didn't watch them, but they used to have magic shows on TV. And then they used to have this guy in a weird mask that would, that would um, expose the magicians on TV. Like he did a show and he would show, here's the magic trick you've seen, and then he's going to show how they actually do it. They had Siegfried and Roy on, and I know I watched those. Something. Anyway, I... I don't I, think I watched that one, though. I loved magic. I'd always get the magic trick sets if I could buy them. My, uh, our, our second son, Rowan, is way into it now, and he buys these big magic sets. And It's adorable to watch him do It's magic really too. fun. He's better than me, though. I've well, never been good at magic. He's, he's magic. very quickly eclipsing me. <laughs> so I'm a very unaccomplished magician. But as anyone who's ever tried doing a magic trick knows, the worst thing about a magic trick is when someone exposes what you're doing. When they know your secret, when they figure it out, and when they tell other people, it just ruins the whole thing. Well, that fits really well um, with this quote from President Benson. This is 1975. He says this, The Book of Mormon brings men to Christ through two basic means. First, It tells in a plain manner of Christ and his gospel, testifies of his divinity and of the necessity for a redeemer and the need for our putting trust in him. It bears witness of the fall and the atonement and the first principles of the gospel, including our need for a broken heart and a contrite spirit and a spiritual rebirth. It proclaims we must endure to the end in righteousness and live the moral life of a saint. Second, the Book of Mormon exposes the enemies of Christ. It confounds false doctrines and lays down contention. It fortifies the humble followers of Christ against the evil designs, strategies, and doctrines of the devil in our day. A little bit later on, he says, God, with his infinite foreknowledge, so molded the Book of Mormon that we might see the error and know how to combat false educational, political, religious, and philosophical concepts of our time. These chapters do this better than just about any others in the Book of Mormon. They expose the enemies of Christ. Um, It's no wonder that Satan has an all-out attack on the Book of Mormon, both ideologically and just tempting us not to read it. Because as we read the Book of Mormon, we A, come closer to Christ, but B, we also become very highly attuned to Satan's deceptions and his tactics. And so these chapters can be incredibly powerful for you as you study. The questions we want to ask and provide our own couple of answers, of course you'll find your own, are these. Number one, what do we learn from these two chapters that expose Satan today? What do we recognize happening in these chapters that also happens today? And then number two, Um, How can these fortify us in our response to temptations or doubts um, or attacks on our faith? Oh man, I love these chapters for the same reason. And I think it was really fun to study with this question in mind because I think it's something that all of us can identify with as we learn and grow in our own personal faith and our faith journeys. Um, the thing that I, I noticed, and I probably noticed it for the first time as I studied this, was as I thought about this question, was the way in which um, Korihor, in this case, starts out and how he talks with the people that he's trying to persuade. Or in this case, when he's talking before Alma and the other leaders, Gadona, 
Um, so this starts, he, he's brought before Alma, finally. He's passed through a few people, and they bring him to Alma. And in verse 31, this is Korahor basically explaining himself. He says, well, it says, And he did rise up in great swelling words before Alma, and did revile against the priests and teachers, accusing them of leading away the people after the silly traditions of their fathers for the sake of glutting on the labors of the people. So he is telling Alma all about what Alma is doing. And Alma, in 32, says, Thou knowest that we do not glut ourselves upon the labors of this people, for behold, I've labored even from the commencement of the reign of the judges until now, with mine own hands for mine own support. And he goes on saying, You don't really know what we did. <laughs> I've never done that. And we see that Alma has never done that. That was his, kind of his MO, was that he wasn't going to live off of the people. Um, and, and this stood out to me because I think I've had this, this happen to me as I've talked about faith with others is that often, and I think this can go with both sides, is that we make assumptions about where people are and where they're going with their faith. Um, here is Korahor telling Alma what he believes and making false assumptions about what he's done to get where he is. And maybe we all have felt that sometime where we feel that someone doesn't really understand us or they accuse us of things that we didn't really do. Um, and you see this happening in these chapters again. And now this is a little bit before where he's first brought to Gadona, the high priest. Um, Korahor says unto him, he starts talking and again, he tells him what they believe. Ye say that this people is a free people. This is verse 24. Behold, I say they're in bondage. Ye say that this happens. And then 25, ye say that this people is a guilty and fallen people because of transgressions of a parent. But you didn't really say that. And here he is not really accusing them. How am I, am I saying this right, Zach? He's accusing them of things, again, that they don't really do or believe. But he's making assumptions about that and making it in a very strong way. It says that he rises up in swelling words. He's a great speaker. We know that about Korahor. He's great with his words. And so people are convinced. And how often have we felt that of, wait, you're really good at saying this. So maybe I do believe it, even though it's completely not the right assumption. Well, and this can happen, of course, accidentally when we make false assumptions about other people or when people make false assumptions about us and our belief. But there is also a level of perniciousness that goes with it. There are people that very clearly make false statements. Um, They set up a straw man, as it were, so that they can knock over the straw man. And because they're so passionate and maybe even so well-spoken, people believe them. I learned recently uh, that people have, that we as humans, have a natural truth bias. We, We naturally assume that people are telling the truth. And so when you listen to the news, you assume that the newscaster is telling the truth. You have no idea whether he or she is saying the truth. You just trust them. And so when someone comes out and says something about your church or your faith or the past or what it teaches, if they're passionate, and sometimes even if they're not passionate, they're just speaking, a lot of times people fall into the trap of assuming that they're telling the truth when they either accidentally are not, Either they're ill-informed or ex, you know, they're, they're making false assumptions. Or sometimes they're just outright lying. And this happens to us all the time where someone comes and says, 
oh man, you Mormons believe this, or you believe this, or your church says this, or this and this happened 200 years ago or 100 years ago. or, And they'll say it so passionately and so angrily that people believe them. And it's happening right now. I've, I've watched on social media even as people will accuse the church of doing things or more often it's the church needs to stop being this way. The church needs to quit doing this. And almost every time I read those, I think, what church do you, which church are you talking about? What church do you go to? My church is not that way. My church doesn't do that. We don't say this. We don't treat people that way. You must be talking about a different church. Well, certainly that's true. And I think um, when we talk about relevance, this is one for us too. To remember that as we make assumptions about other people, isn't that what the movement is all about right now is listening to other people's story and really listening to understand rather than assume that we know the experiences or the beliefs of other people. So I think that can be even swept to this general is even as a human, don't do what Korihor does and tell people what they believe. Instead, sit and listen. In fact, I, I loved the opposite of what I saw from Godona and Alma. Um, after Korihor tells Alma what he has done and believes, he begins to, Alma has his response, and then he begins to ask questions to Korihor. He doesn't tell Korihor what he's doing or what he believes. Instead, he says, well, actually, this is what I've been doing. Um, I've always labored in the church. And then in verse 35, um, why are you saying these things to get gain when thou of thyself knowest that we receive no gain? And then he asks the question, and now believest thou that we deceive this people that causes such joy in their hearts? I love to see that um, Alma never took that assumption that vengeance out on Korihor instead wanted to understand him and ask questions. And I saw the same thing. The first thing that Godona says when Korihor is brought in front of him is, why are you doing this? Why do you teach this? Why do you speak against all the prophecies of the holy prophets? So they're really trying to understand who Korihor is and where he's coming from, which I think is a great lesson for us in all aspects of life. It's really good. The point that I noticed this time that I hadn't before is a phrase that Korihor uses and a phrase that the Zoramites use. And maybe reading these two so close together highlighted it for me. One of the things that Korihor does when he's hurling out his accusations against the church and against the priests is this. This is verse 13. O ye that are bound down under a foolish and a vain hope. A little bit later on in 23, he says to Gedona, um, because I do not teach the foolish traditions of your fathers, and because I do not teach this people to bind themselves down under the foolish ordinances and performances which are laid down by ancient priests. And then in verse 24, ye say this people is a free people. Behold, I say unto you, they are in bondage. And then this is the one that, well, first, the Zoramites say the same thing. When they're up on their tower, um, they pray um, to God, supposedly, uh, thou art the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thou hast elected us that we shall be saved, whilst all around us are elected to be cast down by thy wrath down to hell. For thou, for the which holiness, O God, we thank thee. And we also thank thee that thou hast elected us, that we may not be led away after the foolish traditions of our brethren, which doth bind them down to a belief in Christ, which doth lead their hearts to wander far from thee, O God. I think it really came home when I noticed Korihor in verse 27 mentioned this. 
You lead this people away after the foolish traditions of your fathers, and according to your own desires you keep them down, even as it were in bondage, that you may glut yourselves upon the labors of their hands, that you that they durst not look up with boldness, and that they durst not enjoy their rights and their privileges, yea, they durst not make use of that which is their own. Um, I have heard this argument many times against me personally and against the church, that uh, our faith and our membership in the church uh, puts us in bondage, either a physical bondage when we're teenagers. It's, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't uh, go here. I think when we become adults, it's not so much a physical bondage as it is an intellectual or an emotional bondage that people accuse us of being in in the church. Oh, because you remember the church, you have to think this, or you have to feel this, or when you feel this, or when you think this, you're not welcome. See, your church puts you in bondage, and you're not free to express your or realize your own rights and your privileges and lay claim on that which is yours. And I find that so troubling on so many levels. First of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the ultimate freeing agent. It helps us to realize um, our intellectual and our emotional freedoms. It helps us to explore ourselves to the very depths of our soul and realize what's there. And so to accuse the gospel of putting us in bondage is just completely crazy. But the second thing that bothers me about this is the inherent assumption uh, that we are to be, how does he put it in that verse 27, that we have rights and privileges and that God does not have a right to infringe upon our rights and our privileges. That's really what Korahor is saying. Your church is infringing upon your rights and privileges. Well, anyone who's a member of the church, anyone who has faith, know that God really can't, we can't sacrifice anything to God because he owns it all anyway. Our possessions, our world, the only thing we can sacrifice to him is our will. It is our rights and our privileges. And so we give up our will to God. We say, I'm not going to do this, or I'm not going to say that, or I'm not going to behave that way, even though I have a quote unquote right or a privilege to do that. I am giving up part of my agency to you. In return, God then gives us ultimate agency, power, and one day uh, the ability to be like him. Well, it's always really resonated with me that that same thought that you're saying, that scripture in John, I should have looked it up, is it 717 that he says, the truth shall set you free. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've really, really felt that in my own life because... Actually, the last two episodes that we've talked about, we talked about being content and using God as our measure. Um, and then two, two episodes ago, it was about change and adding God into that. For me, as I've added God into that mix and used him, used his truth that he's given us to guide my life, I feel like it's made me more free. It's given me that power that you're talking about, that um, deep down whatever it is, contentment or peace that I think really what, what many of us are seeking for in life. And maybe you've had that experience too, that that resonates with you too, because the truth really does set us free. Well, and lest my, it's obvious this this makes me frustrated. Um, And I need to be more like Alma in chapter 31, when he hears the Zoramites praying about this quote unquote bondage that everyone is in. Um, he himself is frustrated 
And yet I love his prayer. And I noticed a repetition in his prayer that I definitely need to add to mine. He says in verse 30, this is chapter 31, O Lord God, how long wilt thou suffer that such wickedness and infidelity shall be among this people? And I've had the same thought. How long is this going to go on where faithful Christians are attacked for being good and faithful? But Alma prays for this. O Lord, wilt thou give me strength? Notice, not strength to combat them, not strength to argue back, not strength to win my side of the fight. O Lord, wilt thou give me strength that I may bear with mine and bear mine afflictions? Uh, verse 31. O Lord, wilt thou grant unto me that I may have strength, that I may suffer with patience these afflictions which shall come upon me? And then in verse 33, wilt thou grant unto them, uh, meaning the faithful believers, that they may have strength, that they may bear their afflictions which shall come upon them because of the iniquities of this people? I love that Alma's response, and I've long loved that the church's response to any kind of criticism is one that is filled with patience and calm assurance of the truth. Um, and so if we're asking the question now about how do we respond to this, how can this chapter, how can these chapters help fortify us in the face of those that would attack our faith? One answer for me is I need to pay, pray for much more patience and that calm assurance that God is in control and things are going to be okay. Yeah, you seem to have found some energy, Zach. <laughs> Get Zach talking about something that he's opinionated about, and suddenly he has all this energy. Weird. Anyway, yes, though, that was so good. Um, now, we've already kind of shared some of these as we've talked about ways that can help us, but um, one that I think was just at the beginning, very simple but very meaningful and poignant, I think, for all of us, and a basic one to remember in verse 3, it says, And yea, the people did observe to keep the commandments of the Lord, and they were strict in observance, in observing the ordinances of God according to the law of Moses, for they were taught, taught to keep the law of Moses until it should be fulfilled. Um, and this is talking about those people that then when Korahor comes to them, they just bind him up and take him to their high priest. Because <laughs> they're like, we're not really going to listen to you, but we know that you're not telling us the right things. So these are people that weren't really affected by what Korahor was saying. And then as I noticed that, because I thought, oh, this is a great way to fortify myself, is to keep the commandments and ordinances of God. Remember what's most important, sticking close to God. Um, as I read chapter 31, it stuck out to me in verse, in verse 8. Now the Zormites were dissenters from the Nephites. Therefore they had had the word of God preached unto them. But they had fallen into great errors, for they would not observe to keep the commandments of God. Um, and so, and we know what happens to them. They're the ones that build the Ramiumpton and are, are pretty confused. And Alma's really sad about what they're doing because they're not fully um, getting their blessings and understanding their potential because they're not following those things that the other ones did. I love um, this thought because Korhor gets the most... I was going to say screen time, page time in the Book of Mormon out of all the Antichrists. gets this big, long chapter written about him. And he actually doesn't have that big of an impact on the people. The first group of people who you mentioned are the people of Ammon. We just got done reading about him. These are the converted Lamanites that never did fall away. They bury their weapons. They would rather die than break their covenants. That's the first group that he tries to teach or preach to. And uh, they have 
They have nothing with him. They take him in front of their high priest. They kick him out of their city. He goes to the next city and they won't have anything to do with him. And then they take him in front of Alma and Alma and him have that, that showdown. Um, but the reason that he doesn't have any impact with them is because they were diligently striving to obey commandments and ordinances. And I know this sounds like such a simple point, but I remember President Eyring a long time ago saying that great faith has a short shelf life. And if you're not daily diligently strengthening that faith, then yes, it is easier for someone or something to come along and shake that faith or make you doubt. So if someone comes at you trying to dissuade you from faith, either by telling you what you believe that you really don't believe, um, or else accusing your church or your faith or your religion of binding you down and limiting your freedoms, um, perhaps the best response is to return to doing the things that you know bring faith and that nurture it and grow it, and then praying for patience uh, to bear those afflictions. Um, one final thought that I have in closing, my favorite group of verses in all of these chapters is Alma's response to Korahor. Um, for a long time, I had heard and even said in response to questions of doubt that you just have to believe. There are some things you don't know and you just have to believe. Now that may be true. I'm not outright contradicting it. But a couple of years ago, Elder Ballard um, spoke to uh, the entire church education system. Um, I'll put his talk in our show notes because it's awesome and worth reading. But one of the things that he mentioned is that we can't do that anymore. Gone are the days that when we can respond to questions about our faith or about our religion with just a, you know what, believe it and it'll all be okay. That doesn't work anymore. Especially it does not work with the youth. They want and deserve answers. And so I love that Alma responds to Korahor with answers. And he uses this word, um, verse 29 or verse 39 in chapter 30, now Alma said unto him, Will you deny again that there is a God, and also deny the Christ? For behold, I say unto you, I know there is a God, and also that Christ shall come. And now what evidence have ye that there is no God, or that Christ shall come not? I say unto you that you have none, save it were your word only. But behold, I have all things as a testimony that these things are true. In verse 44, he'll repeat himself and say, Um, Korhor asked him for a sign, and he says, Will you say unto me, show me a sign, when you have the testimony of all these thy brethren, and all the holy prophets, the scriptures are laid before thee, yea, and all things denote there is a God, even the earth, and all things that are upon the face of it, and its motion, and also all the planets which move in their regular form, do witness that there is a supreme creator. And yet do you go about leading away the hearts of the people, testifying unto them there is no God? And yet will you deny against all these witnesses? I love, I've always loved the four things that Alma mentions are the witness. First, um, the testimony of those around you. Second, the testimony of prophets, living prophets. Third, the scriptures. And then fourth, the creation, the physical world that we live in, denote that there is a God. But I love that Alma labels those things as evidence and witnesses. In other words, you do not have to have blind faith. You don't just have to believe in the face of doubt. You can have spiritual and even physical 
evidence and witness that God is real, that he talks to men and women today, that he has a church on the earth that is led by prophets and apostles, that there's power to heal and forgive, and and that eventually there's a heaven that we can get to. There is evidence of those things, and we can have that evidence. Amen to that. I, I think that's something that we're all striving for, and maybe there's some way that... Um, you haven't felt that in a while, or maybe you're trying to discover that for the first time. As you said that, Zach, I thought, hmm, I'm, I want to feel that some more. And I think so maybe that's my challenge and maybe my invitation to you is maybe you're not feeling it or maybe you're looking for more ways to feel God in your life um, and maybe explore those a little. I think for me, I've thought of a lot of out-of-the-box type of ways lately that make me realize that God is in the details of my life. So if you're feeling the Spirit or feeling God in different ways, um, I think that's a good way to say that God changes and evolves with us and that He's there, there with us if we're seeking Him and listening for Him. We hope that you have a great study this week in these, in these rich chapters, and we are, hope that you're enjoying your summer. And we will be back next week with a new episode. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.